Welcome to the Facts or What Matter podcast, where we discuss the lies, the myths, and the propaganda being promoted by the media and society. Let's all be informed, not uninformed, or even worse, misinformed. Here we go. Hello, I'm your host, Dave Swinford, and in this episode, we will explore the facts of the COVID-19 vaccine and how well it works, if at all. And always, I like to state that my motivation for starting this podcast was to supply you, the listener, with information that you can use to counter the misinformation that's promoted by the media and the politicians, which are essentially the same thing these days. Some key principles I always remind myself of and would like to pass along to you is lie a little, lie a lot. When someone is willing to lie or withhold key facts a little bit to get their way or to tell their story, they're usually willing to lie a lot to get the outcome that they want. If they're willing to tell small lies, then we're stopping them from telling big lies and and a lot of lies. Follow the money is always about the money. And you can, of course, replace the word money with power or greed because basically they're the same thing. And this is not a new principle, but it's easy to forget the underlying motivation for the media and the politicians is always power and money. Share what you know is the truth. Call out the lies and the misconceptions when you see them. Try to educate your friends and family with the facts in a gentle and kind way because they may be spending way too much time watching the mainstream media. So now to get into the, into the episode. The bottom line up front, no. The COVID-19 vaccines do not work. So how do we know? Well, if they work, they would show that the vaccines keep you from getting the disease. The vaccines would keep you from spreading the disease. They would... They would keep you from getting extremely sick and dying from the disease, which they claim is happening, but it's not not evident. And they would show that the vaccines as a whole, in, a, in the macro sense, would result in less, de- less deaths among the whole population as a whole, as in excess deaths across the year. So they haven't stopped the spread. They haven't stopped the variants. They haven't stopped hospitalizations and deaths. Did they limit those? Well, that's what they tell us, but it it's debatable. It seems somewhat obvious. We had Delta in the summer when a significant portion of the population was vaccinated and normal respiratory viruses are on the downslide. They're waning. They're not increasing. And, of course, that was followed closely by the boom, 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 Omicron variant, right? So it didn't stop the variants. It didn't stop the spread. In fact, the vaccinated were and are still getting COVID. The early ones were called, quote, breakthrough cases. And now they blame Omicron. So if the vaccines were so effective and durable, then why do we, why did they not even last a year or even six months? In fact, a study out of Denmark showed that the vaccinated and the boosted were even more likely to get the Omicron variant. They found that people were 2.6 times more likely to get Omicron if they were fully vaccinated and 3.66 times more likely if they were vaccinated and boosted. Well, they certainly haven't stopped deaths since we saw more COVID deaths in 2021 with the vaccines and most of the population vaccinated than we did in all of 2020 without the vaccines and with our inexperience in treating COVID-19. So what about hospitalizations? Well, that's kind of a weird number because what I'm hearing is some hospitals, they don't test you. If you admit, when you're admitted, if you're vaccinated, they say you're, they don't test you. But if you're unvaccinated, 
Well, what does that what does that mean? Well, it means if if you haven't been two weeks out from your second shot, then you're considered unvaccinated. So if you go in there and you test positive and you die of something else, you still died of COVID nineteen. So we were told the vaccine we were told that the vaccines will keep you from getting the disease. That's what we were told. And that's what the mainstream media was telling us in the spring. And so Alex Berenson, who has written a bunch of uh, really good stuff on this, he probably has written the, some of the definitive pieces on the vaccine gaslighting that's gone on. And his writing is on Substack now. And uh, he quotes, he's got several quotes in here. He says, this is a quote from Gallet Alter, uh, Harvard immunologist and virologist. On February 25th, he said, what we see is that Immunity conferred by the vaccine can essentially completely limit the breakout of any infections in the population. So basically, it's going to stop it. And then on March 29th, the CDC reported that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines reduced infections by 90%. The findings provide researchers with more evidence that vaccines reduce the risk of infections, including asymptomatic ones. And on April 28th, Dr. Ugar Sahin, the chief executive of BioNTech, you know, the, the German company that developed a, a Pfizer vaccine, he said he expected the European countries to reach herd immunity by July or August. Of course, that was 2021. Sahin cited studies from Israel, which shares medical data on its vaccination campaign with Pfizer, showing that people who have been immunized rarely fall seriously ill and are significantly less likely to transmit the virus to others. Well, that's really not happening because they've, in a, in a paper in the European Journal of Epidemiology by Subramanian and Akil, they basically showed that there's a negative correlation to cases. And then this Harvard, there's a Harvard study that shows that, and the, and the title of it is actually called Increases in COVID-19 are Unrelated to Levels of Vaccination Across 68 Countries and 2,947 Counties in the United States. And the plot in the paper this plot shows that as vaccinations go up, so do the COVID cases. And that's not what's supposed to happen. So how do we get here? We're a year, we're a year into these so-called miracle shots being put into people's arms. And what, is, what made us think that these shots were going to stop the infection and the spread? How did we come to believe that this 95% efficacy of this vaccine Besides, of course, they told us that, that. So where did that come from? So let's, let's listen to this little uh, clip here. The so-called 95% efficiency rate touted by the pharmaceutical companies was misleading, to say the least. A peer-reviewed study by The Lancet confirms the vaccine efficiency of 95% reported by the vaccine manufacturers was referring to relative risk reduction rather than absolute risk reduction, as would be standard. Your actual risk of reduction of getting COVID after the vaccine has then been reduced by 1.2% with Moderna, 1.2% with Johnson & Johnson, and by less than 1% with Pfizer. Meaning after you receive the vaccine, on average, you are 99% just as likely to get COVID. This raises three questions. By getting a vaccine, how would you be helping other people? If you have natural immunity, as 50% of the population likely does, why would you still be required to get the vaccine? And if the vaccine doesn't stop the spread, why would you need a vaccine passport? Once you've applied a moment of critical thinking, you'll find anyone advocating these requests is either uninformed, irrational, 
or has an ulterior motive for suggesting everyone should be vaccinated. Let's summarize this by crunching a few official numbers. The Pfizer NNV is 117, meaning 117 people need to be vaccinated to prevent one COVID case. That's to prevent a COVID case, not a COVID death. Since the median survival rate of the virus itself is 99.86, that means 999 out of 1,000 cases survive. So you would need to prevent 1,000 cases to prevent one death. That means you would need to vaccinate 117,000 people to save one life. By the first half of 2021, about 134 million people in America have been fully vaccinated. So far, 10,355 people have died in the first six months of 2021 in the U.S. alone. That means 56 people a day are dying immediately after receiving the vaccine. Due to underreporting, that actual number of deaths is likely significantly higher and officials and CDC whistleblowers estimate it to be at 51,800. But we'll continue with the officially released numbers. 134 million people vaccinated divided by 10,355 official deaths from the vaccine results in 12,940. This means COVID vaccines kill at a minimum one out of every 12,940 people that are vaccinated. So if you vaccinate 117,000 people to save one life, 9.04 people would die from the vaccine. When you average all the age groups, you find that you are 904% more likely to die from the COVID vaccine than for it to save your life. That's bad enough with the official deflated numbers. With a more likely estimate of 51,800 deaths, that means you are 4,520% more likely to die from a COVID vaccine than to be saved by one and the likelihood of developing a lifelong debilitating disease is even greater. They don't talk about a lot, do they? They don't talk about the number of people who died and the complications from it, because not just because it doesn't kill you doesn't mean that you don't have a debilitating uh, condition. I have, I have no personal people, personal friends of mine who've lost function. I have a friend, and she lost a hearing in one ear because of it, and they want, no one will accept it that it is that because it's, you know, it's, it's no, it could have happened. So anyways, so that's not what our leaders were telling us, right? Our leaders have told us a whole different story. Let's, let's, let's listen to what our leaders like Fauci were, they were telling us about this. People are vaccinated. They can feel safe that they are not going to get infected. We have all the vaccines we need. We just need our people to take it. Just take it. For their take own it. protection, for the protection of their family. But also, see, protect your family. You're going to protect your family because you take it, because then you're not going to spread it. And that's a, that's another fallacy. Because he comes back later, later in the year, he says, he he says, that same amount of infection, same amount of uh, infection in your larynx or whatever, in your nasal larynx, if you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, the same amount of virus. But let's let's continue to break the chain of transmission. You want to be a dead end to the virus. So when the virus gets to you, you stop it. You don't allow it to use you as the stepping stone to the next person. I think given the country as a whole, the fact that we have now about 50% of adults fully vaccinated and about 62% of adults having received at least one dose as a nation, I, I'm, I feel fairly certain you're not going to see the kind of surges we've seen in the past. If you're vaccinated, <laughs> that didn't work you're out. not going to be hospitalized. You're not going to be in an ICU unit, and you're not going to die. You're no, that okay. didn't work out either. You're not going to get COVID that if didn't you work have out either. these vaccinations. Yeah. During 2021. 
Okay? So, and then, of course, there's the highly esteemed virus expert, Miss Rachel Maddow. We know that the vaccines work well enough that the virus stops, stops. with every vaccinated person. Dead a vaccinated end. person gets exposed to the virus. The virus does not infect them. The virus cannot then use that person to go anywhere else. It cannot use a vaccinated person as a host to go get more people. That means the vaccines will get us to the end of this. Yeah, that didn't work out really well, did it? How about that? So, <laughs> but it's funny. Uh, you know, these people, they have, they're supposed to be the experts. The people that the CDC, Tony Fauci, they're supposed to be, they're supposed to have more knowledge and more understanding and a better grasp on what happens with infectious diseases and viruses. A local doctor in Indiana testifying to a school board told us, testifying back in August of 2021. Remember Dr. Dan Stock? Let's listen to what he says here. Dr. Dan Stock. Regulation and everything being recommended by the CDC and the State Board of Health is actually contrary to all the rules of science. So things you should know about coronavirus and all other respiratory viruses, they are spread by aerosol particles, which are small enough to go through every mask. By the way, the literature that supports all of that is in a flash drive that we presented to you has been given to the secretary. As a matter of fact, it quotes at least three studies sponsored by the NIH to that exact fact, even though the CDC and the NIH have chosen to to ignore the very science that they paid to have done. Um, That is why you keep struggling with this, is because you cannot make these viruses go away. The natural history of all respiratory viruses is that they circulate all year long, waiting for the immune system to get sick through the winter or become deranged, as has happened recently with these vaccines, and then they cause symptomatic disease. Because they cannot be filtered out, and they have animal reservoirs, and this is a very important point, no one can make this virus go away. The CDC has managed to convince everybody that we can handle this like we did smallpox, where we could make a virus go away. Smallpox had no animal reservoirs. The only thing it learned to infect was humans. That's why we were able to make that virus go away. That will not happen with this any more than it will with influenza, the common cold, respiratory syncytial virus, adenoviral respiratory syndromes, or anything else that has animal reservoirs. So the reason you can't do this is because you're trying to do something which has already been tried and can't be done. Equally important is that vaccination changes none of this, especially with this vaccine. And I would hope this board would start asking itself before it considers taking the advice of the CDC, the NIH, and the State Board of Health, why we are doing things about this that we didn't do for the common cold, influenza, or respiratory syncytial virus. And then ask yourself, why is a vaccine that is supposedly so effective having a breakout in the middle of the summer when respiratory viral syndromes don't do that? There you go. Respiratory viruses don't have breakouts in the summer. And here we are a year later, and we had the Delta variant, we had the Omicron variant. So what about the deaths? What it, well, the, as I mentioned before, the total number of COVID deaths were more in 2021 versus 2020, even with the shots. And we should be more knowledgeable on treatment regimens. There was a statistician, um, his name's Norman Fenton. He's a UK analyst, and he looked at all-cause mortality. And so his argument is if the vaccines are working, the all-cause mortality of the vaccinated should be less than the unvaccinated. And hospitalizations, he, he, he mentions it, and as we've discussed, they're not a good metric since they use the same bad tests. The, testing, the test for the COVID-19 is, is known, known to be bad. Uses the same bad tests as cases, 
when people are admitted and it could be coming in for other conditions like a gallbladder or a broken bone or whatever. So he has a video on YouTube and on Rumble and he discusses the UK Office of National Statistics, the ONS. He discusses their data and he's done some modeling and he's done, um, He's in this modeling to understand what's going on with the data. And it's pretty technical, but it's, but it's fascinated, fascinating. He says, if the vaccine prevented serious cases and death, then why is the case fatality rate the same last year for unvaxxed versus this year when we have over 60 70% of the people are vaccinated? And we've been told that the Delta variant is so much worse than the initial strain, but yet the deaths given a case is the same, which, by the way, is less than 2%. And his takeaway assessment was for people greater than 30 years old through week 42 of 2021. This is in the UK. The all-cause all mortality is higher is higher for the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. Here's a clip from his, uh, his discussion. So in conclusion, all COVID data, which is driven by the idea that a case is synonymous with a positive PCR result, is easily manipulated and potentially misleading. And in particular... Vaccine effectiveness studies are generally flawed because of that reliance on determining whether a person becomes a case or not. Now, the simplest and most objective way to determine the overall risk-benefit of the COVID vaccines is just then to compare all-cause mortality between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, where by vaccinated we mean people who've had at least one jab. That gets around a whole load of problems of definition of not just whether someone's a COVID case, but also whether they're vaccinated or not. The latest ONS report on mortality by vaccine status we've seen should provide the necessary data, but it's flawed in many ways. The impossible observed data could be explained by misclassification, delayed reporting and or underestimation of the proportion vaccinated. And if we adjust for those, we reach coherent but very different conclusions. But as it stands, the data provides no real evidence that the benefits of vaccines outweigh the risks. There you go. So his conclusion was, doesn't, there's no real clear evidence. I mentioned the uh, study out of Harvard that was titled Increases in COVID-19 Related to Vaccination Status Across 68 Countries in 2947 Counties in the U.S. And a little bit more on that. Said this in that report, it said at the country level there appears to be no discernible relationship between the percentage of population fully vaccinated and new COVID nineteen cases. In fact, the trend line suggests a marginally positive association, such that countries with higher percentage of population fully vaccinated have higher COVID nineteen cases per one million people. Notably, Israel, with over sixty percent of their population fully vaccinated had the highest COVID-19 cases per million people in the last seven days. And, of course, this is this is an older report, and Israel is way over 60% now. And uh, they're on to their sometimes the fourth, the, the fourth shot, the second booster. It also said the lack of meaningful association between percentage of population fully vaccinated and new COVID-19 cases is further, further exemplified, for instance, by a comparison of Iceland and Portugal, both countries have over 75% of their population fully vaccinated and have more COVID-19 cases per 1 million people in countries such as Vietnam and South Africa that have around 10% of their population fully vaccinated. 
It says the sole reliance on vaccination as a primary strategy to mitigate COVID-19 and its adverse consequences needs to be reexamined. It said in a report released by the Ministry of Health in Israel, the effectiveness of two doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine against COVID-19 was reported to be 39%, substantially lower than the trial efficacy of 96%. And remember, this is relative risk reduction, at least the trial was. So what they're reporting may be absolute, but, but still, 39 versus 96, big difference. It is also emerging that the immunity derived from the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine may not be as strong as immunity acquired through recovery from COVID-19 virus. Well, duh, right? The CDC reported an increase from 0.01 to 9% and from 0 to 15% between January and May in the rates of hospitalizations and deaths respectively amongst the fully vaccinated. Okay, so that's not what they were telling us. They're telling us it protects you against hospitalizations and deaths. And this says the CDC reported an increase from 0.01 to 9% and from 0 to 15% in the rates of hospitalizations and deaths, respectively, amongst the fully vaccinated between January and May. So m- those shots that people got in January... Yeah, they were seeing numbers like 0.01 and 0, and now they're seeing like 9 and 15. Now, of course, the message is not, now the course of the message is not the prevention of disease, but they were, of course, they were still touting the vaccine's ability to prevent disease in late August when they absolutely knew that that was not true. They knew by August that you could not use these vaccines to prevent disease. In in the press release, when uh, Pfizer when the Pfizer vaccine was approved by the FDA and the, you know of course they renamed it Comirnaty in the press release on August twenty third, it said that today the US Food and Drug Administration approved the first COVID nineteen vaccine. The vaccine is has been known as the Pfizer BioNTech COVID nineteen vaccine in will now be marketed as community for the prevention of COVID-19 disease in individuals 16 years of age and older. It says for the prevention of COVID-19 disease in individuals 16 years of age and older. Wow, that's not what we're getting. So let's just take a minute and discuss how vaccines are tested and what the approval process is. So the government doesn't do these tests. The f- big pharma, they develop a vaccine or a drug, and it, you know, of course in this case it was co-developed with the U.S. government, and U.S. government scientists like Fauci own some of the patents used in this vaccine. Yes, Fauci has his name on the patent, and he gets paid a royalty for every one of these shots, these mRNA shots. Pharma will ask for approval from the FDA to test this vaccine or drug. They'll design a trial or a test that will prove or disprove the safety and the effectiveness of the vaccine or this drug. They'll decide who, who's going to get it, what the sample sizes are going to be, what the component groups are by age, disease status, control groups, what the control group is, 
how they're going to execute it, over what time period, you know, weeks, months, years. And then there's a whole process, the normal process of a lab test, an animal test, a human test, some limited deployment, how they're going to monitor it. They'll come up with what the metrics of analysis will be. What does what does a success mean? What does a failure mean? What is is it prevention of disease? Is it limiting the spread? Is it limiting hospitalizations? Does it stop the deaths? I mean, what what are the metrics? And, and they might even have metrics in there, you know, biometrics like they're going to check blood pressure, they're going to check heart rate, they're going to look for specific enzymes in your bloodstream, you know, those kinds of things. They didn't do that in these; they just look for cases. But we'll get there. So they collect the data, the uh, pharmaceutical company, they, they and their subcontractors will collect the data, they'll analyze this data, and they'll present and report the results of this trial to the FDA, the CDC, the people who make the decisions. Now the FDA, the NIH, et cetera, these decision makers, they get to decide if the testing and analysis done by the pharmaceutical company shows that the drug or vaccine is safe and effective. And I'll never forget that some of the government decision makers will get paid royalties from these drugs or vaccines since they own some of the patents. Also, don't forget, there's this revolving door between the government leadership and the big pharma leadership where FDA, CDC, NIH leaders, they leave the government service to take leadership and board of director positions with these pharmaceutical companies. Did you know that since 1985, the pharmaceutical companies pay a significant portion of the FDA's budget. So evidently, we weren't getting drugs to the market fast enough, so now they're actually paying part of the government's budget to basically speed things along. And initially, you know, this was just done to speed, like, the development of the AIDS drugs and some other cures that were stuck. But now it's just part of the established process. You see any issues with this? Big pharma and government leaders get paid when new, dr- new drugs and vaccines get approved and sold to the public. The oversight watchdog function of our non-elected government officials, because we didn't elect Tony Fauci, we didn't elect some of these people, has potentially been compromised by their financial interest in the drug or the vaccine and, of course, the follow-on employment. So who's the watchdog now? The media? Well, the drug manufacturers, they spend more than $3.5 billion a year for advertising with the mainstream media. You think that carries some weight? And yeah, those tech companies like, oh, Facebook and Google, yeah, they make money on their same kind of advertising. So who are the watchdogs? You and I, concerned citizens, volunteers, amateur investigators, midnight statisticians, and others sometimes maligned as conspiracy theorists, right? by the big tech, by mainstream media, and by our government overlords, who, of course, are allowed to present disinformation and cloak it as the truth. Well, surely, surely, you know, all these academic journals like the um, uh, Lancet, uh, British uh, Journal of Medicine, uh, New England Journal of Medicine, surely these academic journals and peer reviewers are trustworthy. We we have those people, right? Those people can can give us some uh, an honest assessment of what's going on in some of these things. Well, it turns out they're pretty compromised too. Let's listen to Cheryl Atkinson discuss this. The next thing I want to touch upon is something a bit frightening, 
and it has to do with other things we've spoken about in recent podcasts, the increasing control over or manipulation of our information when it comes to nearly every aspect of our lives. Well, it comes into play with science too. And I covered this story a couple of years ago on Full Measure. The former head of the New England Journal of Medicine, very prestigious medical journal, Dr. Marsha Angel, as mainstream as it can get, affiliated with Harvard Medical School, she actually stepped forward and said that much of the science in peer-reviewed published journals today is not to be believed because this information, these studies, these publications, she argues, have been entirely co-opted by pharmaceutical interests. And if you understand how deeply these conflicts of interest go, I covered a lot of those stories and learned about them as an investigator for CBS News over the years, how articles are ghostwritten by pharmaceutical companies that hire middlemen to get a valid doctor to sign on as if they wrote an article, pay them a fee, maybe $1,500 to sign their name to it, to promote a particular medicine or pump up a market for a particular medicine before it's introduced. There are so many different tactics that are used. And there are so many ways that studies are conducted today that I learned about, very different from a couple of decades ago. It used to be that studies were generally published whether the findings were good or bad for the sponsor or for the drug that was being studied. And then some years ago, it got to the point where the pharmaceutical industry did not want the bad information published and learned how to control these researchers, including academic researchers, through contracts, confidentiality agreements, through control of the data in different centers so no single research group involved in a study had access to all the data and could publish about it if they found something negative. All kinds of tactics to make sure that some information never gets out or that what does get out is the most positive spin on a particular medicine or item. That's why I do read a lot of these studies and information reporting on them with a grain of salt because I know in general, I've concluded based on experience and insiders who I've spoken to that the information that finally gets out to the public is a very rosy version of something that happened or of a study, or even if it exposes perhaps side effects or potential problems, sometimes those problems turn out to be quite a bit worse than what was acknowledged publicly when you dig into the data or when time goes by. This is how many studies are done today. Years ago, I covered a very important study that was conducted to try to find a vaccine for AIDS, which has still not been accomplished today. And when a researcher discovered that there was potential harm coming to the people involved in the study, the study had to be stopped midstream. And there was... Of course, you know, Tony Fauci was all into those AIDS vaccines, but, but let's keep going. Researcher thought it was very important to publish that information so that any other research that was similar could look at the safety information and also be informed and perhaps save lives or save people in studies or save people down the road from potentially getting hurt. But he wasn't allowed to publish it because this was one of those early cases I knew about where the drug company, the vaccine maker in this case, forbade him from publishing the negative information, even though it was supposed to help greater science and help the public health. And this scientist thought it was so important that it be published anyway. He went ahead and published what he had. He couldn't get access to the full data because, as I mentioned, 
they had spread out the data centers and the way the study was being conducted so that no single research group had access to all of the data and could really publish a comprehensive paper. But because this was deemed so important to the public health, the medical journal that published it agreed to go ahead and publish it with partial data and partial information, knowing that this researcher was being prevented from getting access to everything. And then the researcher was threatened with a multi-million dollar lawsuit from the pharmaceutical company for publishing the information when he had signed some sort of confidentiality agreement. Fast forward to today, the control of studies and science has grown stronger and stronger. And in addition to Dr. Marsha Angel, formerly of the New England Journal of Medicine, saying that you can't believe a lot of the science in peer-reviewed published medical journals today, she was joined by the editor-in-chief of Lancet Medical Journal, Richard Horton. He wrote an editorial piece that said, likewise, much of the science published in journals today is not to be believed. And they're not just talking about fringe journals. In fact, some journals that would be considered more fringe probably have more freedom to publish some studies and findings that are outside the narrative in some instances than these journals that you've heard more about. So that's from Cheryl Atkinson. Cheryl's got a, she's got a couple of podcasts. One is on just the news and then uh, she's got a Cheryl Atkinson podcast and she has a uh, TV show that's, that's uh full measure that's, that is on Sundays. It's syndicated. She does some great work. So I encourage you to go look her up and she's been way ahead of the curve on a lot of this stuff over the last couple of years. So there you go. We, you know, they had this initial Pfizer study and then went into the approval of the vaccine. And the interesting thing is it showed more deaths with the vaccine than the placebo. So more people died in the key clinical trial for Pfizer's COVID vaccine than the company publicly reported. So they told the world that 15 people who received the vaccine in its trial had died as of mid-March. That's March of 21. And on July 28th, Pfizer and its partner, BioNTech, they posted the six-month data update from their COVID vaccine clinical trial. And that was the one that the regulators used to okay the shot to the FDA to okay the shot. So it turns out that the real number was 21 compared to only 17 deaths in those who hadn't been vaccinated at all. That, does that make sense? So let's let's look at let's go listen to what how this happened and what was done and you'll hear numbers like 20 there's a little bit of confusion whether it was 20 or 21 but there was definitely more people died in the vaccine arm than died in the other arm. We'll begin with the most important premise in medicine. First, do no harm. The federal, provincial, and municipal governments in Canada have a responsibility to protect the health of Canadians as well as our charter rights and freedoms. Any medical interventions approved by Health Canada must first be proven safe. Due diligence and research, as well as adherence to the established protocols of the doctor-patient relationship, informed consent, and scientific inquiry are essential to carrying out that responsibility. Deviating from those practices, causing harm, and failing to disclose risks of harm is negligent at best. It's important to understand the hierarchy of scientific evidence. 
When you're talking about proving things to be either safe or harmful, you need to rely on the best evidence. As you can see from the table on the right, a randomized control trial is level one evidence, the highest form of evidence there is. It's considered the gold standard, and it's the only way to prove that something is true. Models, which we've heard a lot of during the pandemic, are actually the lowest form of evidence, level five or lower, as they're considered to be expert opinion or speculation. Policy should always be determined by the highest level of evidence available, which is level one. So first, we're going to talk about Pfizer's original trial report that came out in December 31st of 2020. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it showed two months worth of safety and efficacy data. It described how the trial started with over 43,000 people divided into a treatment group and a control group, and how for two months, they followed them to see who developed COVID-19. The report claimed that the inoculations were safe and showed 95% efficacy seven days after the second dose. But that 95% was actually relative risk reduction. Absolute risk reduction was only 0.84%. Many people don't know the difference between relative and absolute risk reduction, so we're just going to show you what that means. Pfizer reported that its vaccine shows a 95% efficacy. That sounds like it protects you 95% of the time, right? But that's not actually what that number means. That 95% refers to the relative risk reduction, but it doesn't tell you how much your overall risk is reduced by vaccination. For that, we need absolute risk reduction. In the Pfizer trial, eight out of 18,198 people who were given the vaccine developed COVID-19. In the unvaccinated placebo group, 162 people got it, which means that even without the vaccine, the risk of contracting COVID-19 was extremely low at 0.88%, which the vaccine then reduced to 0.04%. So the net benefit or the absolute risk reduction that you're being offered with a Pfizer vaccine is 0.84%. That 95% number, that refers to the relative difference between 0.88% and 0.04%. That's what they call 95% relative risk reduction. And relative risk reduction is well known to be a misleading number, which is why the FDA recommends using absolute risk reduction instead, which begs the question, how many people would have chosen to take the COVID-19 vaccines had they understood that they offered less than 1% benefit? So the first thing you need to understand about how Pfizer ran this study is that it didn't go according to their stated plan. There was an inoculated group and a placebo group of about 21,000 participants each. And they began the phase three trials in July of 2020. And the study was blind, which means the participants didn't know which group they were in. And this blinded trial was supposed to go on for three years until May 2nd of 2023. That would mark the end of phase three of the clinical trial. At that point, the trial would be unblinded, which means the placebo group would be offered the intervention if it were indicated and if they consented. But that's not what happened. Instead, after they had accumulated and released only two months worth of trial data, Pfizer unblinded the study, which means they told all of the placebo and inoculation group participants which group they were in and offered the placebo group participants the option of moving over to the inoculated group. Most of them took Pfizer up on that offer and the vast majority of the placebo group moved into the inoculated group, which means that quite early in 2021, there was no longer a control group to compare the inoculated group to which means that for the rest of the trial, there's no way to assess long-term effectiveness or safety. Now we'll move ahead to Pfizer's six-month report data, and that came out on September 15th of 2021. This report indicated an efficacy of 91.3%, which means the inoculated group showed a reduction in positive cases compared to the placebo group. But shockingly, 
the inoculated group also showed an increase in illness and deaths. Now this is a problem because there's no benefit to a reduction in cases if it comes at a cost of increased illness and death. So now you understand how how the program of the vaccination program was executed, how the study was executed by Pfizer. What we also know we never hear, we never hear these dissenting opinions uh, on mainstream media. They never really cover them. There's a there's a person, uh, Dr. Peter Doshi. He had a dissenting opinion. He's from the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. He came out with a dissenting opinion on the uh, on this on this vaccine. His, this is this is what he wrote. He said, Doctors Walensky, Walke, and Fauci write that clinical trials have shown that vaccines authorized for use in the U.S. are highly effective against COVID-19 infection, severe illness, and death. However, this statement is inaccurate and inconsistent with the data. And then he goes into this, what I mentioned. He said Pfizer reported zero COVID-19 deaths among the vaccinated and placebo groups in its phase three trial. Moderna reported one COVID-19 death in the placebo group. In other words, among more than 73,000 participants in two trials, there was only one COVID-19 death. And the FDA's review of both vaccines correctly stated a larger number of individuals at high risk of COVID-19 and higher attack rates would be needed to confirm efficacy of the vaccine against mortality. Let me read that again. The FDA's review of both vaccines correctly stated a larger number of individuals at risk of COVID-19 and higher attack rates would be needed to confirm efficacy of the vaccine against mortality. In other words, you can't prove that it, it helps in deaths with this trial. The, the test wasn't set up to do it. He says, he goes on to say, in addition to COVID-19 deaths, differences in all-cause mortality were significant in both trials. The findings are limited by the relatively short follow-up period and the fact that fewer than 200 study participants in each trial had symptom, symptomatic COVID-19. Although more hospitalization and deaths would emerge with longer follow-up, it will not be possible to evaluate this because both companies are now unblinding and vaccinating the placebo recipients. So conclusions, this is Peter Doshi still, conclusions of high efficacy against severe illness are debatable, depend on the definition of severe illness and one's comfort with drawing conclusions from a small number of events in trials not powered to study a relatively rare endpoint like hospitalization. It is noticeable that Pfizer, in interpreting his own data, conveyed less certainty than the Walensky, this is the, the CDC director, Walensky, and colleagues, characterizing efficacy against severe COVID endpoint as preliminary evidence. Moderna was also cautious, stating the results suggesting its vaccine is likely to have an effect on preventing severe illness. This, this whole, it prevents severe illness, and if you want to you say severe illness is being hospitalized, well, there was very, very, very few people, 73,000 people, and only 200 cases of COVID-19 and 73,000 participants in very, very small samples. And most of those didn't end in the hospital. It says, and it goes on to say, with respect to SARS-CoV-2 infection, none of the vaccine trials were designed to determine whether vaccines reduced risk of infection, but rather to determine if they had tested positive after experiencing COVID-19 symptoms. 
In other words, can you pass a, can you pass the COVID test? Pfizer said a serologic endpoint that can detect a history of infection regardless of whether symptoms were present will be reported later. And Moderna reported that the data were not sufficient to assess a symptomatic infection. So the, the results from this is the results from both trials show significant reductions in the trials, primary endpoint, adjudicated symptomatic COVID-19 after a median follow-up of around two months. However, it is a different conclusion than saying they are highly effective against infection, severe illness, and death. That's Peter Doshi, Ph.D., University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. So they didn't design the test. They didn't design the trial to show that they were highly effective against infection, severe illness, and death. All they designed the trial is to have a two-month trial. Did you test positive for COVID-19? Yes or no? If you did, if you, if less people tested positive for COVID-19, and again, we all know the tests are jacked up. We know the tests are not very reliable. In fact, they're so unreliable, they pull one of the tests at the end of December, right? In December of, of uh, 2021, it was the end of life because that, for that test because it wasn't reliable. Again, you look at the UK data from last year. They, they had from the 1st of February to the 2nd of August, the UK reported 742 Delta deaths. The dreaded Delta only took 742 lives in the UK. And I cite the UK data because they actually have more reliable data than we do. Surprise, surprise. Out of the 742 deaths, 402 were fully vaccinated. 79 had just one shot and only 253 were unvaccinated. Again, 402 deaths out of 47,000 cases in the vaccinated group, 253 deaths out of 151 cases in the unvaccinated group. If you get COVID having been vaccinated, according to this data, you're much more likely to die than if you were not vaccinated. Now, obviously, you know, age makes a big difference here. If elderly people weren't were vaccinated and younger people weren't vaccinated, the bottom line is this vaccine is not nearly as effective as they've advertised to us. And with all the unknowns and the, all the adverse reporting number that is you know, suspect, all the other vaccine is more is higher than every, every, all the other vaccines combined. A complete recalibration of, the, of our global policy is really the only, only way forward. Again, I mentioned 60% of all the hospitalizations in Israel are fully vaccinated patients. And the powers that be will not admit that there's something wrong. They will not acknowledge the clear science that people with natural immunity and the young and the healthy do not need to take the risk of these injections. Instead, they will jab, 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 and jab again, come up with vaccine passports. Some countries are ordering as many as eight shots per, per citizen. The masks are not going away. And even though, even now the CDC is saying the masks don't work. In these reports, there was another key thing that was said in one of these reports. The PCR cycle threshold, the values that are really routinely taken in the tests, this is in England, they showed the uh, viral load. And they found that they're similar between individuals who are unvaccinated and vaccinated. In other words, the whole idea of getting vaccinated to protect others is entirely false. The vaccines do not offer you much protection, nothing to others, and they're especially limited given the associated risks there are in 
in taking these vaccines. Now, finally, the head of Pfizer is actually saying this. He's actually saying this now. So listen, listen to him. The three, the two doses of the vaccine offer very limited protection, if any. The three doses with a booster, they offer reasonable protection against hospitalization and deaths. Uh, and against deaths, I think, very good. Um, and less protection against uh, infection. Now, we are working on a, on a new version of our vaccine, the 1.1, let me put it that way, that uh, will cover Omicron as well. And uh, of course, uh, we are waiting to, to have the final results. The vaccine will be ready in March. All right. All right. Be like iPhone. You know, get this year's version of the iPhone, this year's version of the vaccine. Yeah. The last version worked so well. The boosters worked so well. You want me to take yet another experimental vaccine? I don't know. And that was, that was Mr. Burla. He was the CEO of Pfizer. And they've made billions of dollars in profit, injecting hundreds of millions of people with vaccines that have inflicted a lot of collateral damage. And now the head of Pfizer is telling us that two shots offer no protection. This is the same man who some couple months ago labeled those who called in to question his company's product as conspiracy theorists and criminals. And to quote Mr. Borla, he said, people who spread misinformation on COVID-19 vaccines are criminals and have cost millions of lives. That's what this guy said. What we asked was exactly the nature of this misinformation. It mostly consisted of concerns related to the safety and, and efficacy of these vaccines. By his own admission, we know that the vaccines are not particularly effective and it is obvious to most of us that they're not particularly safe. Feel free to draw your own conclusion, but mine, mine is that the vaccines do not work today and they most likely have never worked. So I encourage you to go get your own information and draw your own conclusions. For more reading and information, I encourage you to go check out Alex Berenson on Substack, Norman Fenton, that was the statistician, Tracy Beans over at Undercover DC. She also has a Telegraph channel and a and the Dark Delight podcast. Cheryl Atkinson has her own website. Justin Hart with Rational Ground. There's Steve Kirsch on Substack. Daniel Horowitz, Conservative Review Podcast. Some of these people are on podcasts, some are on Rumble, Telegram, some on Substack, and very few are still on Twitter since that's where the truth goes to get persecuted and silenced. And in closing, as Thomas Sowell has stated, some things are believed because they're demonstrably true, but many things are believed simply because they have been asserted repeatedly and repetition has been accepted as a substitute for evidence. Do not take things. Do not take things that have been asserted as true for truth. Experts lie Policymakers lie, and the media certainly lies and continues to assert those lies as truth. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you'd like, you can contact me at factsarewhatmatter at gmail.com. I'll try to respond. Um, please tell your friends, and remember to rate and subscribe. And until next time, remember, the facts are what matter. Thanks for listening to the Facts Are What Matter podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to catch our future episodes.